I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Big Lebowski. Money. Coming up later in the show, Twilight with Paul Newman, Gene Hackman and Susan Sarandon. You are good. You are very good. And coming up next, the new film from the makers of Fargo, The Big Lebowski with Jeff Bridges. I received this ransom note this morning. This is a bummer, man. Jeff Bridges plays one of two characters named Jeff Lebowski in the would-be comedy called The Big Lebowski from Fargo filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohn. And I certainly hope that the main reason I didn't care for this film isn't that it simply suffers by comparison to their great film Fargo. Because most every film I'm going to see this year or next year isn't going to measure up to that picture. I just think that the humor in The Big Lebowski is uninspired. Jeff Bridges plays a too self-consciously created character named Jeff Lebowski, a laid-back 80s dude in surfer shorts who is mistaken for and then confronts a high-powered businessman also named Jeff Lebowski, played by David Huddleston. Kingpin was a much funnier film set in the world of bowling. Jeff Bridges' character wasn't worth my time. There's no heart to him, like, say, the Francis McDormand character in the Coen Brothers' Fargo. The Big Lebowski, a big disappointment. I liked it enough to recommend it, and I think there's a lot of heart to the Jeff Bridges character. I think this is a very interesting performance of a guy who never really finishes anything. He's described as the laziest man in Los yeah. Angeles, and he has these like two wonderful friends, Steve Buscemi and John Goodman. Goodman gives a very good performance. And the whole point is, of course the plot is, is a cliché, the kidnapping scheme, but the whole point is, the plot is essentially... It, I think what the Coen brothers are doing is satirizing a plot like that by attacking it through these woefully comic and incompetent characters who are absolutely adrift and way out of their uh, element here, and that's what's funny. I just thought they were so obviously written, particularly the Jeff Bridges character, as this dude type. Um, and then the other thing is, because there's only been two pictures of theirs I haven't liked, mm -hmm. and that would be the Hudsucker Proxy, yeah, which uh -huh. I don't you didn't care for either, and this one. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that decor got involved in both of those pictures. I noticed their art direction more on this picture and Hudsucker. And the other thing, wealthy people. Hudsucker, and here, the uh, well, big Lebowski, that, the other So Lebowski. they shouldn't make any more movies about wealthy people? Um, they better be careful. When we come back, Paul Newman, Susan Sarandon, and Gene Hackman star in a thriller called Twilight. Still love me. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert there, legendary movie curmudgeons. Rewatching the first word in movie criticism in the 90s, I am repeatedly frustrated by the fact that they have time constraints. They're not allowed to go into the film. They spend so much time synopsizing the damn thing. And that sounded like it was about to heat up. But we had to cut to some movie called Twilight with Susan Sarandon that I've never heard of. Fortunately for you folks, the podcast was invented. Tumbling down, pledging their love to the ground. Way out west, there was this fella, fella I want to tell you about. Fella by the name of Jeff Lebowski. At least that was the handle his loving parents gave him. And he never had much use for it himself. This Lebowski, he called himself the Dude. Now, Dude. That's a name no one would self-apply where I come from. But then there was a lot about the dude that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And a lot about where he lived, likewise. Now this here story I'm about to unfold took place back in the early 90s. 
Just about the time of our conflict with Saddam and the Iraqis. I only mention it because sometimes there's a man, I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man, and I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a man, well, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. I done introduced him enough. With them all for collective action, this will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Here on the range I belong Drifting along with the tumbling Tumbleweed This is my favourite Coen Brothers movie, bar none. I saw it the first time on release in 1998 in a London West End cinema while heavily jet-lagged, so I found myself drifting off and missing vast swathes of it. I left the theatre utterly confused and bewildered, but also amused and endeared to the characters. It appropriately lends itself to watching while addled and floating on various substances, and not only does it hold up to repeat viewings, it gets better each time. Definitely. Because you notice more. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I was a little bit nonplussed as to why... I was a little bit drunk! <laughs> um, as to why it, you were so passionate about it. And the more times I see it, the the more layers of appeal get built onto it. And I believe, and we'll obviously talk about this when we get to it, that this is down to the quotability mm. levels of mm. the script, which build up with repetition. Yeah. And uh, it's obviously humour, which is threaded throughout this, is very much an acquired taste. And this is a specific brand of it. And if you don't like that kind of this kind of film... While it could get a little bit more easy to understand with repeat viewings, there's absolutely no shame in going, you know what, doesn't do it for me, much like most of the classics. Humour is absolutely subjective. This is We say this many, many times. This is one of the reasons why we so rarely cover mm. comedies. This is why I don't think that there should be even such a thing as a guilty pleasure. Don't feel guilty. Mm. Feel pleasure. Absolutely, yeah. If you enjoy something or don't enjoy something, that is absolutely fine. Yeah. Structurally, it appears to be a deliberate mess. The whole thing is a neo-noir detective mystery, uh, but much like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the other guys, both by Shane Black, which it could happily share a mini film festival with, it is the incompetence of the detective and nearly everyone around them that both humanises proceedings and pushes it sideways, in this case, into a strange mythological Los Angeles period piece, set at the time of filming only seven or eight years earlier in the very early 90s but itself a timeless mishmash of 70s music and bygone room decoration. Bowling alleys are hung about with the kind of starbursts that scattered America as the entire nation pivoted from a culture of Wild West in the 50s to Space Age in the 60s, while the spirit of the acid wave mumbles and sings to itself quietly in the back rooms. And while the dialogue may sound... Trying not to give itself a headache. <laughs> While the dialogue may sound drawled and sloppy, even improvised, the actors, especially Jeff Bridges, were in fact cleaving with razor focus on a meticulous script written by the Coen brothers, one that forms the entire skeleton of this thing. 
For those who watched it and were, like me the first time, completely lost and bemused, I have gone out of my way this time to note down details that are set up and paid off, almost always in inconclusive, absurd fashion, answering questions in a way that just raises further questions. It requires pitch-perfect performance on all counts, and my god, the whole caboodle is filled with an amazing cast, beyond Bridges in the role of The Dude, a scruffy, perpetually puzzled California dropout that he will probably be most remembered for by cinephiles. Like, th this is the performance of his career. Coen Brothers' solid rock John Goodman is also unforgettable, as is Julianne Moore, having a semi-amazing year. She appeared in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights and Steven Spielberg's ill-advised Lost World and Gus Van Zandt's far more ill-advised shot-for-shot remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I feel like her character of Maud gets quoted even more than the other characters in The Big Lebowski in this house, which is saying something. Well, you know why, because she is quoted almost constantly by me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and has indeed helped to inspire at least one, maybe several characters in the New Century multiverse. Oh, no, Mr. Lebowski. <laughs> Time enough, ow, to see my private physician. I'll pay for your treatment. He's a good man and thorough. Along with these three, there is Steve Buscemi, the funny-looking one, Peter Stormare, back again... For, I nearly got Sharon to do an Iron Bruce spit take there. <laughs> uh, along with Peter Stormare, back again from Fargo, this time as very different men. Uh, John Torturo, playing a character who managed to be even more memorable than Barton Fink in mere seconds of screen time. The late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, Sam Elliott... John Polito, David Thewlis, Ben Gazzara, Mark Pellegrino, Amy Mann in a blink and you'll miss her cameo. Flea, the bass player from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Tara Reid. And finally, David Huddleston, the titular magnate from the Hudsucker Proxy, as Jeffrey Lebowski, the other Jeffrey Lebowski, a man who shares the same name as the dude, leading to the instigating confusion of the story. As we see unfolding later, the rich Jeffrey Lebowski owes money to a pornographer named Jackie Treehorn. Treehorn has made several movies with Rich Lebowski's young trophy wife, Bunny. Treehorn sends his inept goons to recover these overdue funds. Unfortunately, they go as far as the phone book and find a Jeff Lebowski in Los Angeles and pitch up at the dude's house, looking to extract payment from him via a swirly toilet dunking session, followed by deliberately urinating on a favorite rug of his. Where's the money, Lebowski? You want that money, Lebowski? Bunny says you're good for it. Where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the fucking money, shithead? Oh, it's, uh, oh, oh, it's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. Don't fuck with us. Your wife owes money to Jackie Treehorn. That means you owe money to Jackie Treehorn. Ever thus the deadbeats, Lebowski. Oh, no, don't do that. Not on the rug, man. See? See what happens, Lebowski? You see what happens? Nobody calls me Lebowski. You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude, man. Your name's Lebowski, Lebowski. Your wife is Bunny. My, my, my wife, Bunny? Do you see a wedding ring on my finger? Does this place look like I'm fucking married? 
the toilet seat's up, man! Woo? Yeah. Isn't this guy supposed to be a millionaire? Fuck. Yeah, what do you think? He looks like a fucking loser. Hey, at least I'm housebroken. Thanks a lot, asshole. This is the only improvisation in the film, and it is scripted improvisation. Wu did not plan on peeing on the dude's rug. He just saw it, and he, he looked at that as an opportunity. Yep. Okay. It's an important facet, so I'm glad he did. They leave when they realise their mistake, still somehow blaming the dude, leading to an exasperated conversation with his buddy Walter at the bowling alley he frequents most evenings, from the looks of it, regarding who is responsible for this rug peeing. <clears throat> this was a... Uh... Yeah, man, it really tied the room together. So this was a valued... Uh, yeah. Tied the room together, dude? My rug. Were you listening to the dude's story, Donnie? Walter. Were you listening to the dude's story? I was bowling. So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie. You're like a child who wanders into the middle of a movie and wants to know- Walter, what's the point, man? There's no reason. Here's my point, dude. There's no fucking reason why these- Yeah, Walter, what's your point? Huh? Walter, what is the point? Look, we all know who is at fault here. What the fuck are you talking about? Huh? No, what the fuck are you- I'm not- We're talking about unchecked aggression here, What the fuck is he talking about? My rug. Forget it, Donnie. You're out of your element. Walter, the Chinaman who peed on my rug, I can't go give him a bill. So what the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? The Chinaman is not the issue here, dude. I'm talking about drawing a line in the sand, dude. Across this line, you do not. Also, dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. Walter, this isn't a guy who built the railroads here. This is a guy. What the fuck are you Walter, he peed on my rug. He peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. Dude, the Chinaman is not the issue here. So who, who? Jeff Lebowski, the other Jeffrey Lebowski, the millionaire. That's fucking interesting, man. That's fucking interesting. Plus, he has the wealth, obviously, and the resources, uh, so that there's no reason, there's no fucking reason why his wife should go out and owe money all over town, and then they come, and they pee on your fucking rug. Am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? Yeah, but... Okay, then. <clears throat> that rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. And this guy peed on it. Donnie, please. You know, this is the fucking guy. I could find this fucking Lebowski guy. His name is Lebowski? That's your name, dude. This is the guy who should compensate me for the fucking rug. His wife goes out and owes money all over town and they pee on my rug? They pee on your fucking rug? They peed on my fucking rug. That's right, dude. They peed on your fucking rug. We meet the dude Lebowski initially buying a carton of half-and-half half cream and milk mix from Ralph's Grocery Supermarket, which is his only identification later on, where the, uh, the sheriff says, is this your only ID? And, and rather than any kind of credit card or driver's license, even though he actually does drive, it's his Ralph's... Club card. Loyalty card, yeah. Half-and-half yeah. half is a key ingredient in the white Russian cocktail that he favours, achieved by mixing it with Kalur coffee liqueur and vodka. And clearly the lady at the register can detect that the dude has been sampling the half-and-half half ahead of time, as he has a creamy moustache. The title sequence mixes two fonts, Mesquite for Westerns and Chevrolet, which has a flashy 50s chrome hot rod diner lean and curl to it. 
So again, it's straddling the point in America where the old world became the new world. Yeah, which is what California often represents.、Mm. It's this. It, frontier land, no matter how much it gets bedded into the system,、mm. and we are led in with this almost mythological opening sequence. It's, it's it,、uh, you're being told a tall tale by、uh, Sam Elliott, this grizzled old cowboy、mm. uh, who is not seen on screen until later on,、uh, speaking with a god view on the. Proceedings that the dude is about to take part in. Yeah, this book ending for me, Sam Elliott's voice at the beginning, and then you see him at the end, and he closes the whole. And thing occasionally,、out. he does narrate in the middle. Darkness washed over the dude. Yes. Yeah, and very infrequently gets involved in short conversations with the dude. But it occurred to me today that another thing I really like about this is that is how Sam Elliott's wraparound gives it this storytelling mythological feel. It's a tall tale. Yeah, absolutely. It's like this is this is. There are elements of this which could easily be apocryphal. They could have altered from being told from person to person. It's the kind of thing that you hear six friends down the line. You have a friend who knows a friend whose sister did this, that, and the other, and it just makes it feel like something you discover by mistake. And the dude himself is characterised by the song and the first imagery we see, which is of a tumbleweed just blowing around the place. Just something about the way the dude dresses and holds himself—he is blown by the wind and the events of this particular film from one situation to another, expressing how ruffled he becomes each time, but never really complaining to the point where you are annoyed by a sense of bitterness. It's always—we are always on the dude's side in terms of well, not. You shouldn't have done that, because oftentimes we're like, you shouldn't have done that. But we're always sympathetic to the dude because everybody else seems so frightfully unreasonable. Well, absolutely. I mean, he is ultimately he has all the hallmarks of being a drifter. However, there are elements of this fundamentally transient town. L.A. is a place that people come and go from constantly, but the dude has. Anchors in this place that you wouldn't necessarily expect somebody of his outlook to have. He has a place to live. I hesitate to say he has a house because he clearly doesn't have it, and he's also a little sketchy on the whole renting thereof. But it feels like his landlord might take rent in trade some months. Well, indeed, yeah. Or in honestly, friendship. Mm. Seems to be the the bargain that's going on there. I, I think the dude's probably getting the better end of the deal, so it seems a little bit exploitative. But either way, but he has a place to live. He has friends. He has a repeated pattern of where he goes and what he does. His comfort zone. Absolutely. Also, while he is. Somewhat obsessed with bowling to the point where it kind of takes up a large portion of his life, to almost train spotting levels. There's a point later on where he's lying on his floor, getting high, listening to old bowling matches,、mm. which is absurd to us, but to bowling freaks, it must just be yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it, it, one of the things that I really love about him as a character is that he really does seem like somebody who looked at. Modern society and the whole structure of hustle and capitalism and wealth creation, and when you know what, that's fine. 
but it's not for me. Making him the polar opposite of the other Lebowski. Indeed. Who, it later turns out, is not even that... The, the person that he tries to present himself as. Mm. But that is his ideal. As the years go on, the other Jeffrey Lebowski becomes a recurring figurehead in popular culture. Doesn't he just? Also, he's totally Mr. Potter. Absolutely. myself I might not take it anymore Take a woman like your kind to find the man in me But oh What a wonderful feeling Just to know that you are Despite his obsession with bowling, the dude isn't actually all that fantastic at it. We never see him uh, achieving championship status. If anyone on the team is really good at bowling, it's Donny, the very placid, somewhat bewildered Steve Buscemi character who just sort of hangs around with these guys because it's not necessarily fun and relaxing. I don't under I can't think of someone less relaxing to be around than Walter Sobchak. But for some reason, Donny remains relaxed, and most of the time so does the dude. My guess is that where the dude is the chill ice in the drink and Walter is the the hot coal? steam or the hot coal or the, the flashpoint, Donnie You're is You're not supposed to put hot coals in drinks. No, I know. But Donnie <laughs> is the lukewarm water in the middle. Yeah. Basically, I can see how for somebody who was not always entirely sure what was going on, the midpoint between Walter and the dude could actually balance out to be relatively relaxing. Or at least comfortable. And it is noteworthy that the film is shot by Cohen Mainstay director of photography Roger Deakins. Initially hired by them several films back because he was foreign and non-union, but retained because he was and remains one of the greatest cinematographers in history. And this is a screwball comedy shot on film with bright 70s colour as its palette impeccably arranged. Buy the Blu-ray, watch the extras and see what DVD did to crush this image. That format was a cul-de-sac for film. You send film down that crushed 480p image, it can't come back from that. It can merely 
wither at the end of that particular cul-de-sac. You have to go back and restore from the source to make a really good Blu-ray or a really good 4K. One of the first things that gets called back to, because this is set during the Gulf War, the dude sees a little of the original George Bush on TV uh, talking about Saddam Hussein, who turns up later in the film, uh, and saying, this will not stand. It's a particularly famous speech of his. The dude repeats that. The dude is kind of like a, a rolling sponge. As he go like Katamaris through this film, he picks up bits and bobs and then kind of repeats them. <laughs> He's off- like Kirby. He swallows things and then it emerges. He's all the video game characters. Yeah. And that is what the script does. It lays down something for you and then someone else says that again later. Oftentimes it's, say, a man stuck in a loop, like Walter will say the same things over and over again. But the dude will repeat what he's heard and they'll drop into his lexicon and then reappear at some point later. We get Where's the Money Lebowski from the two guys trying to extract it from him. That specific arrangement of words that turns up at least four times in this film. And it's asked of different Lebowskis. We also get see what happens from them at the beginning. Walter later says, see what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass to a a boy named Larry. Mm -hmm. And they made Jesus go house to house. Yes, they did. (laughs) Um, One of the nihilists also says, I'll fuck you in the ass, I'll fuck you in the ass later on. That would have, yep, okay, my 151st point. I fuck you! Uh, oh, and Jesus says, I'll fuck you in the ass. Fuck you in the ass when? I'll fuck you in the ass on Wednesday. Wednesday Donnie gets a strike at the beginning. Later on, he gets a strike and says, again, I'm throwing rocks tonight. At the very, very end of the film, he does not get a strike. He strikes out and get, there's one pin still left. I don't know if that's called a 9-1 split or something, but uh, it's just shy of a strike. It's just not quite right. And the look on his face indicates that he's like, oh... And he can feel something's different about the air, and something is about to happen. Okay, sir, you're a Lebowski, I'm a Lebowski. That's terrific. But I am very busy, as I imagine you are. What can I do for you, sir? Uh, well, sir, it's uh, this rug I have. It really tied the room together. Uh, you told Brandt on the phone, he told me. Where do I fit in? Well, uh, they were they were looking for you, these two guys. Uh, you know, I'll they... say it again. You told Brandt on the phone. He told me. I know what happened. Yes, yes. Oh, so you know that they were trying to piss on your rug. Did I urinate on your rug? You mean, did you personally come and pee on my rug? Hello. Do you speak English, sir? Parla usted inglés? I'll ask you again. Did I urinate on your rug? No, like I said, woo. Or peed on my rug. I just want to understand this, sir. Every time a rug is micturated upon in this fair city, I have to compensate the person. Come on, man. I'm not trying to scam anybody here. Uh, you know, I, I'm just. Uh... You're just looking for a handout like every other. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you 
You don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Well, I do work, sir. So if you don't mind... No, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. I mean, your wife owes my... My wife is not the issue here. I hope that someday my wife will learn to live on her allowance, which is ample. But if she does not, that is her problem, not mine. Just as a rug is your problem. Just as every bum's lot in life is his own responsibility, regardless of who he chooses to blame. I didn't blame anyone for the loss of my legs. Some Chinaman took them from me in Korea, but I went out and achieved anyway. <laughs> I cannot solve your problem, sir. Only you can. Oh, fuck it. Oh, fuck it. Yes, that's your answer. That's your answer to everything. Tattoo it on your forehead. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. My advice to you is to do what your parents did. Get a job, sir. The bombs will always lose. Do you hear me, Lebowski? The bombs will the phrase he peed on my rug he peed on his rug is again repeated this is it's almost like um his girl friday in the in the sort of back forth back forth back forth and aaron sorkin as well like uh, when uh, when you get dialogue it's not just the speed it's repeating certain pieces of information back and forth There's that actually gives it. it a tempo and a humor am i wrong said by walter, walter repeatedly all the time yeah frequently walter is correct but being an asshole about it which mm -hmm. the dude tells him about sometimes however walter is in fact wrong absolutely he uses the phrase am i wrong to interrupt people to stop anyone contradicting him no one gets an opportunity to work out whether or not walter is wrong he won't let them he never yeah you're right he never allows someone to contradict him once he's made a statement he will never back up on something the closest he gets is when uh, the dude tells him that Smokey is a very fragile man mm. and Walter's concession is, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. But you look at the way his posture and tone shift mm. when he goes from being emotionally uh, intense about something to simply making a statement of fact. When he switches in the conversation where they're talking about the, the, the rug in the first place mm. and he comes in to say that is not the preferred nomenclature, the term is Asian American. He's he comes down to a very calm place. Calmer mm. than you are. And <laughs> <laughs> you could put Walter, this same character, in a drama and put some Kubrick music underneath him and say, look at this man so fucked up by war that he becomes manic at a drop of a hat. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's two other things that I would say support this idea that Walter's psyche is somewhat unbalanced and and or at least there is a lack of consistency he jumps from personality trait to personality trait sometimes at the drop of a hat he when Donnie has his heart attack he lapses straight into battle mode yeah. he is utterly handling that crisis yeah. calmly and knowing exactly what to do that is his element that is where his brain wants him to be at the funeral, at the end, he is standing like a child. Yeah, big child. Who does not know where to put himself or what to do. You're out of your element, Walter. 
There's a room of awards when we don't meet uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, the other Jeffrey Lebowski, the millionaire, until we see his awards. It's very important that everyone visiting him be shown the various photographs of his achievements. And this is done by his Lickspittle uh, Smithers type, uh, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman named Brent. And... The there's one that there's a couple of very important ones, the little Lebowski urban achievers, uh, which the dude picks up on and immediately approves of this Lebowski, uh, thinking that these are all his actual physical birth children and saying different mothers. So he's cool with race. So uh, automatically, the dude was rather progressive in some ways. Yeah, less so in others. But I the. That, he's immediately accepting. He he is, but that kind of... I'm never quite sure whether he's making a joke at that point. No, no, no. No? Nope. Okay. Definitely not. Fair enough. I've, I, I can tell when the dude makes a joke, it's well-timed and there's a little beat before it. Okay. Question. <laughs> yes. That wall with all of the awards on it... And the key to Pasadena. Indeed. Is that opposite... Lebowski's, Lebowski's desk. Gear. Oh, absolutely. He watches them say, all day and jacks it. Yeah, the fact that they are all on one wall rather than spread around the room made me think those are for other people, not for him. That's mm. so that somebody can become can come in and be shown all of his achievements. But if he spends all day staring at them, that suggests that this idealised version of himself needs constant shoring up. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. He feels... Well, father's weakness is vanity. He is... A fragile little guy on the inside. He needs to constantly tell people about his achievements and also berate them for their lack of achievements. Yes, because how will I know I'm special if I'm not surrounded by people who aren't? The Little Lebowski Urban Achievers is a fund that he runs in order to uh, make sure that little kids uh, from underprivileged neighbourhoods get to go to school. It's something like uh, what Michael Scott ended up accidentally pledging far too much to expecting to be a millionaire uh, in the office by the time he was 40. But the one of these awards isn't even an award. It's astonishing. It's a Time Magazine Man of the Year framed award, but it's a mirror which allows you to sort of look at it and go, I could be Man of the Year, which immediately made me think of Donald, Donald Trump, Trump and how he lost his shit, even though he became Man of the Year in 2016 because he dominated the whole year. In that instance, it wasn't necessarily an achievement. It was, we, you were the shit on our shoe we could not get rid of. So Time Magazine awards you the shit award. Now you hold on a minute, sugar tits. <laughs> Everyone saw through that report. And I even got that award off those feminists. The one shaped like the ice cream fellow. That's a shithead of the year award. <laughs> then, like, I think Greta Thurberg got uh, 2017 and he lost his mind. Because this little girl he'd been battling with and being, kept being outwitted by because she's smarter than, I don't know, half a sea slug. But yeah, the gist of what the Big Lebowski tells the dude is that he demands recognition for everything he has achieved, but accepts responsibility for no one else's mess. So immediately he throws his wife under the bus in a kind of a, my wife is none of your concern, illustrating immediately that she's a very, very sore spot for him, but also that she has problems and she has issues and she owes a large amount of money and that at the same time, that's not his problem, when clearly 
It is. It seems like that is nobody's problem. I have to say, we see very little of Bunny in mm -hmm. this film. We certainly don't get to know much about her, but everyone in this movie judges the shit out of her. I like there's one shot later on that is purely speculative on the dude's part where he's thinking about Jeffrey Lebowski shouting at his wife while she's uh, sat on the sofa calmly reading through a magazine and Tara Reid gives this really hurt look on her face which suggests that in his head the dude is at least going poor woman. Mm. Well he yeah okay apart from the dude who does frequently express sympathy for her. Mm. Walter however. Yeah. <laughs> Even Maud calls her a slut at one point. Yeah. Uh, well, Maud's had to deal with her. And Walter has a lot of uh, pent-up aggression related to his ex-wife, Cynthia. Very true. Uh, the Big Lebowski also notes that, uh, I'm sorry to use this slur, some China man took my legs from me during the Korean War. At which point you suggested maybe it was a Korean soldier. That was my favourite. Blah, no. Huh? Go ahead. Blow. You want me to blow on your uh, toes? Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't blow that far. Are you sure he won't mind? Billy doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. Oh, that must be exhausting. Immediately thereafter, the dude has lied to Brandt about the Big Lebowski saying, take any rug you want, and they are walking out of the house, this palatial mansion, with what turns out to be Maud Lebowski's mother's treasured rug, mm -hmm. effectively stealing something that's precious to her, but not necessarily to Jeffrey Lebowski. It is worth noting that uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, the big Jeffrey Lebowski... Whenever shows, we say Jeffrey, we mean, we mean yeah. the, the ostensibly rich one. He expresses about as much interest in this rug that belonged to his deceased wife mm. as he does in his current wife. He never asks the dude to give him that rug back. Yeah, no, it only matters to Maud. Yeah. Uh, and this is where uh, the dude meets Bunny and uh, she introduces him, though at a distance, to Uli, her boyfriend? Question mark. Co-star? Not much of a boyfriend. Uh, associate. Say, associate. Who's yeah. passed out on a uh, inflatable chair in a pool with a bottle of liquor uh, empty floating in the water next to him. And here the dude quips in a dryly humorous fashion that must be exhausting. But despite his facetiousness, there is a kernel of truth to that. Not believing in anything saps your energy. Couple more things here. Uh, the green toe polish, which we are given a very close-up look on so that when we see a toe later on, uh, we associate that directly with, well, who else has this distinctive green toe polish? So we at least buy into the kidnapping that's about to seemingly occur, even though there is actually no kidnapping. Also, the music playing is mucha machacha, da 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 da, which, only ever played in one other film that I can think of, and that's Beavis and Butthead Do America, when Beavis was wanking, or about to wank, in a camper. Okay. Yeah, they're like a couple of little old spider monkeys. In whose camper was he whacking Miss off? Tom Anderson. <laughs> now I gotta straighten up in here. I never seen two boys do so, so much, much damn whacking. whacking. <laughs> 
See what you need is a good butane regulator. It's just just Hank See, Hill. See, this is the other reason why we don't do comedies all that much because we just end up quoting things endlessly. Indeed. Aside from the crucial fact that Hank Hill prefers propane to butane. Uh, Donny gets another strike here. Things are still going well for Donny. And Walter's ex-wife's Pomeranian makes an appearance here and we start to hear about him doing really nice things for this woman that he actually has nothing to do with anymore. We hear nothing about them ever having kids. So she and her new husband are off in Honolulu and he's looking after her little rat dog. Which is an annoying little thing. Luck somehow survives this movie. Dogs in crime capers. Mm. You know, especially little yipping ones. You know, in 2023, that would be used as a martial arts weapon. To good effect. Woo! I'm slamming it tonight. You guys are dead in the water. All right! Way to go, Donnie! If you want... It is no dream. Fucking 20 minutes late, man. What the fuck is that? Theodore Herzl. Huh? State of Israel. If you will it, dude, it is no dream. What the fuck are you talking about, man? The carrier. What's in the fucking carrier? Huh? Oh, Cynthia's dog. I think it's a Pomeranian. I can't leave him home alone or eat the furniture. I'm watching it while Cynthia and Marty Ackerman are going to You brought a fucking Pomeranian bowling? brought it bowling. I didn't rent its shoes. I'm not buying it a fucking beer. He's not taking your fucking turn, dude. Man, if my fucking ex-wife asked me to take care of her fucking dog while she and her boyfriend went to Honolulu, I'd tell her to go fuck herself. Why can't you board it? First of all, dude, you don't have an ex. Secondly, this is a fucking show dog with fucking papers. You can't board it. It gets upset. Hey, its man. hair falls out. Walter. Fucking no. dog has fucking papers. Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey. You were over the line. That's a foul. Bullshit. Market eight, dude. Uh, excuse me. Market zero. Next frame. Bullshit, Walter. Market eight, dude. Smokey, this is not nom. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. It's just, hey, man, it's Smokey. So his toe slipped over a little, you know? It's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over. Give me the marker, dude. I'm marking an eight. Smokey, my friend. You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. You mark that frame in eight, you're entering a world of pain. I'm not. A world of pain. Look, dude, I, this is your partner. Has the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? Mark it zero. They're calling the cops, man. Put the piece away. Mark it zero. Walter, put the piece away. Walter? You think I'm fucking around here? Mark it zero. All right, it's fucking zero. You happy, you crazy fuck? Fully game smoke. But this is where we see Walter go way over the top. We've been, we've had it illustrated before, but a man named Smokey, who they're playing against in the bowling alley on a different team, uh, puts one toe over the line. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the average person in the bowling alley isn't going to get too head up about it. And it feels like pernicious arguments over one additional point that actually is the winning point of a particular league match would be the norm for that kind. Like for people who take the league stuff really seriously, which obviously the dude doesn't. Donnie clearly kind of does, but in a kind like he wants to succeed. But Walter, 
there are several times in the movie where, uh, you know, someone's life is on the line and Walter's like, will this interfere with the league game? Walter's... This is his life. Yeah, his continual return to there are rules. Yeah. There is so, I, I feel like there the is so much of chaos bowling. going yeah. on in Walter's head. He desperately needs the external rules to make him feel like everything isn't falling apart. Yeah. So uh, what he quotes at uh, Smokey is, this is not Nam, this is bowling, there are rules. Which illustrates that he actually did see Nam as chaos. And that even though he went through the army corps, was clearly given the rules and strictures there, the actual, when he was in the shit, was pure chaos Well, that's him. the thing, yeah. Combat, war, is chaos. And within the military, the idea is that you create an internal structure that to try will to then marshal it. enable yeah. you to master that chaos. Do you know who Walter is based on, by the way? Yeah. The director of Conan the Barbarian and Red Dawn, no. John Milius. <laughs> oh my God! Terrible waste to throw her over, huh? I would say another waste. We kill so much beauty in this movie. Oh, this is with the orgy. Yeah. I remember she was this. Yeah. Um, he sounds a lot more chilled. <laughs> I'm Walter. Yeah, I, so I don't know. Maybe the Coens were around him when he freaked out about, I don't know, Conan the Destroyer or something. But maybe. But yeah, maybe he compared his uh, uh, creation of uh, Red Dawn to Vietnam. I don't know. And this is seen by every civilised part of this particular film as way... I mean, he's talking about going over the line, sticking a gun in someone's face. Mm -hmm. And there is an aspect to Walter that is now gut-churning and way too dark as a blast of the of a certain type of American who will go out and stand with their gun in front of a Buffalo Wild Wings demanding the country be reopened for them. I don't know if that's necessarily the category that Walter would fall into. I think we, we I don't do know, bringing see... guns to a place that it's absolutely not appropriate oh, for. totally. Open carry, so you're going in Texas to get some barbecue and you've got to have your AR-15 hanging on your he, back. He has it wrapped up in a bag, so it's not technically open carry. Well, that's the... The, the point I'm getting at is not so much the open carry as this is not an appropriate place for a firearm. Absolutely. It's a bowling alley. And the, the, the way he responds when they go outside... And it's not Vietnam. There are rules. The, the, the fact that the dude is sort of pinning all of this on, you can't do this kind of thing to Smokey. The guy is fragile. Walter, you can't do this to anybody. Mm. You, you just, there will be consequences. And we, in fact, we see the cops turn up and race into the bowling alley. The consequences run right past him. They do, don't they? <laughs> this happens a lot in this film. Yeah. Uh, the dude's landlord here turns up and uh, asks him to come to his... I've got my dance recital in a few days' time. I'd really like it if you came and saw it. And they absolutely do. Later on, this man is giving us his all. His internal passion is coming out on stage in a tiny, empty theatre. He is a tree in a hurricane, just acting with his body. Yeah. So much of this film is about people who are creative in various different ways and how they put the product of their creativity out into the world. Yeah. The dude is summoned back to the Big Lebowski because Bunny has gone missing and there is a ransom note that they are demanding $1 million 
for the return of Bunny. This is the, the classic film noir thing where you're told one crime's occurred, but actually a different crime has occurred, or in this case it's a misunderstanding plus a crime. What's actually happened is Bunny has driven off without leaving a note to visit friends in Palm Springs. And her friend Carl Hungus, slash boyfriend, probably just friend, he's grotty and he's a nihilist and believes in nothing, uses her sudden disappearance as an opportunity to pretend she has been kidnapped and send a ransom note to extract $1 million from her rich husband. Yes, it is important to note for later on that Bunny is not involved in this at all. Yeah. She hasn't got a clue what's going on. She is blamed repeatedly by Walter. She left without leaving a note. Would you, with a man like this shouting at you all the time? Mm. But the big Lebowski has looked at this ransom note and thought to himself, I don't actually want to have this wife back. Extracted the million dollars from the Little Lebowski Urban Achievers Fund, kept it for himself, and then gives the dude, one assumes because the dude imagines it, a couple of phone books inside a steel briefcase, plus a beeper and a phone to make the whole thing look as legitimate as possible, effectively saying, I gave this to a no-good Nick who I thought... So that way when the police investigate what the hell happened, I gave this to a man of ill repute who I thought could actually be a lead in this particular case since he was in a unique position to confirm or disconfirm whether it was the men who uh, soiled his rug. In this case, Jackie Treehorn's goons, who of course haven't kidnapped Bunny. The Big Lebowski never actively admits it, but when confronted with all of it, doesn't deny it at all. Mm. Which means, to me, the dude is absolutely on the money. Which makes Jeff horrible, because he's just allowing his wife to die. And all of it to get pinned on the dude, and the dude potentially to get beaten up and killed in the process of absolutely. all of this. He is happy for human shrapnel to fall all around him so that he can sneak this million dollars out the back door. And he wants this million dollars because, as Maud reveals at the end, father's weakness is vanity, but he actually doesn't have the money. The money's all tied up in the foundation that he extracts it from illegally, mm. and he's just going to keep it for himself. Yeah, well, he frames himself as a high-flying, self-made businessman, mm. but it would appear he married somebody who was, who very, was rich. very wealthy and then used that to get photo opportunities and nods and winks from various high society folk. Yeah. He wants the credit. Yeah. And uh, Maud doesn't say the money's all been left to me by my mother. She says it's all tied up in the foundation, indicating she's not all that interested in money herself. She's an artist. She has her arty friends. She's rich anyway. And so she's not particularly interested in what happened to the money. She cares about the rug and a couple of other things as we go forward. She does provide her father's allowance. Mm. But one presumes that that's from the trust that all of the foundation money is in. Either that or she's giving him it herself just because he's her dad. But to go back to Donald Trump, uh, we there's definitely legal precedence of Trump declaring, like, like doing a fundraiser for charity, getting the money for that charity... And then that money mysteriously never being paid to that charity. Well, he's done fundraisers for his own political campaigning. Oh, yeah. And the money's not gone into the political campaign. It's just gone into his back pocket. We are not, in 2023, going, you know what, there was something dodgy about that Donald no. Trump. No. no. All of this, by the way, allegedly, because court cases and things haven't completed, but... 
Fucking sue us, dude. We will join the back of the queue. (laughs) (laughs) If you can prove that you never stole money from little needy orphans, then we'll admit that that was slanderous. In print, it's libel. But again, with the father's weaknesses vanity, I don't know if this is diegetic music or not. I think probably. The Big Lebowski is sitting in front of a roaring fire in his wheelchair, lamenting the loss of the love of his life, Bunny, lying to us openly, while he's playing, I think it's Mozart's Requiem. Yeah, the key for this whole scene for me is when Brandt leads the dude into the room and he has this Aragorn moment of throwing the drawing room doors open (sighs) and just this sort of we go from the brightly lit sunny hallway in LA I might point out where it is always brightly lit and sunny into a dark firelit pit of misery (laughs) on the dude's t-shirt we've got Ty Cobb He's a big fan, of, clearly, of uh, one of the uh, most famous baseball players of all time. Okay. Also, in the background, I could be wrong. They could just be two vases. I would swear, on the left, when you are looking at Lebowski, there are two funeral urns flanking an ashtray. Yikes. Don't get those mixed up. Indeed. I, again, I could be wrong, but look for them next time you're there. They're quite... Like, they're, they're, they were up on... Bases rather than just being the more flat, jar-like Egyptian urns. Okay, so one assumes then that one of them is Maud's mother. One assumes. He probably also married someone else, considering his age and vanity, and mm-hmm. also however many people could not fucking stand to be around him, but were also ailing in health and thus bitterly died before him. How much did they give you? 20 grand, man. And, of course, I still get to keep the rug. Just for making the hand up? Yeah, they gave... Uh, do the beeper. Also, whenever these guys call. What if it's during a game? Oh, I told them uh, if it was during league play. What's during league play? Life uh, does not stop and start you know, at your convenience, you I, miserable uh, piece of shit. I, I figure. What's wrong uh, with Walter, dude? Uh, I figure it's easy money. You know, it's all pretty harmless. She probably kidnapped herself. Huh? Oh. What do you mean, dude? Rug peers did not do this. Look at it. A young trophy wife marries this guy for his money. She figures uh, he hasn't given her enough. You know, she owes money all over town. That oh, fucking! It's all bitch. goddamn fake, man. It's like Lenin said: you look for the person who will benefit, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I am the walrus. You know, you'll. Uh, uh, well, you know what I'm trying to say? I am the walrus. Uh, That's- Fucking bitch. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex- Shut the fuck up, Donnie. V.I. Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. What the fuck is he talking about? Fucking exactly what happened. Those, oh, that yeah. makes me fucking sick. Well, what do you care, Walter? Those rich fucks. This whole fucking thing. I did not watch my buddies die face down in the muck so that this fucking struffing, this Walter, fucking whore see any could waltz around with Vietnam, down. man. Well, there isn't a literal connection, no, Walter, dude. face it. There isn't any connection. You're wrong. Have it your way. But my your point role. is, that my point your is... Role. Are you ready to be fucked, man? I see you roll your way into the semis. Dios mío, man. Liam and me, we're gonna fuck you up. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. 
Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Then there is the second break-in and assault to the dude's home. Maud has her boys punch him out while he's lying on her mother's rug. You asked why did she do that? Because uh, it's like he's he's very passive. Mm. All they have to do is just nudge him to one side, flip him over, and then just take the rug. I mean, frankly, they we takes the rug. They could have just grabbed hold of the rug and yanked it out from underneath him. And the Lebowski is still been, standing. <laughs> the effect would have been the same. Yeah. But, you know, no need for overt mm. violence. It's possible that Maud, when she found that this creature had stolen her mother's rug, was so pissed off that she was like, make him pay for it. Yeah. Not too much, but definitely give him a crack on the jaw. Possibly. Something which she later feels bad about. And apologises for, yes. Yes. Uh, but this is one of uh, the uh, strange hallucinatory dream sequences in the film where the dude uh, imagines himself flying over Los Angeles, uh, chasing a, a Maud that he hasn't really met yet, who's flying away on the magic carpet of this particular rug whilst listening to Bob Dylan that's actually on that tape because the tape itself says bowling on side one, Dylan on side two. Which means that he has a Walkman that does the thing where it flips Flips over. over. It was the late 90s. They did that then. I had one. This is also where the Coen brothers and uh, Roger Deakins place a micro camera inside a bowling ball for real and bowl it down a lane. So you get this very disorientating, not even 360 spin, 1280 spin that just goes round and round. It's quite out of this world. But it's almost more of a taster so that when gutterballs happens later, we're on the same page. as It that. doesn't feel quite as out of left field as it could have done. Yeah. And the dude does mention that he has the occasional acid flashback. Now, is there a thing in LSD which settles in your spine and then if you put your body in a certain position will actually immediately send some chemical to your brain which will change your temporal place? I have absolutely no idea what the mechanics of it are, but I do know that if you have taken LSD, there is always the chance that it will come back and and resurge. I feel like some of the... Uh, hallucinations that we see are something related to that where they have a dreamlike quality in that he's picking up bits Katamari style from what he's recently encountered and sort of not exactly sorting through them but using them to furnish his dream hallucinations. Otherwise known as a dream, no LSD required that's what the subconscious and, and psyche do, however these are very vivid. They are extremely vivid and what I said about everybody in this is it has some form of creativity going on Mm -hmm. the dudes is in his hallucinations nice and the dude is handed a ringer here like like we said the uh, this is going to be uh, one assumes phone books in a case walter decides as the man driving him to the drop-off even though he's supposed to do it alone to throw out instead a bag containing his own dirty laundry and keep the entire million rather than doing it the proper way as they've been instructed. Walter is very much relying on the assumption that Bunny kidnapped herself, which is something that the dude speculates on. Yes, yeah, but that's a completely random speculation at this point because they don't even know that Uli is involved at this stage. And the dude is getting increasingly more worried because he's taking it seriously. He's just not He's, he's like shaggy at this point well, he is not psychologically equipped to deal with this level of intensity and gun violence he really isn't and I think what bothers him is that for him it was an offhand comment 
Walter has taken it so seriously that somebody's life ostensibly is now hanging on. Her life was in our hands. The idea of being responsible for someone else mm. is traumatic for the dude. In the same way that the big Jeffrey Lebowski doesn't want to take responsibility for anyone else, neither does the dude. Mm. He doesn't want to, but he will. He doesn't wash his hands of it. Mm. He gets upset with Walter. He gets upset with Walter frequently. It is easy to imagine that the dude is placid all the time, because a lot of the time he takes abuse without being abusive back. But he actually does get very angry and irate and animated and squeaky, the way that Jeff Bridges does in an extremely pleasurable fashion. Much like Tom Hanks, Billy Crystal, Jack Nicholson, Adam Sandler and Tom Cruise. These are all entertainingly angry men, though the best films categorize this anger as weakness rather than strength. What the? Have they called yet? What the hell is this? My dirty undies, dude. Laundry, the whites. Walter, I'm sure there's a reason you brought your dirty undies, man. That's right, dude, the weight. The ringer cannot look empty. Walter, what the fuck you thinking, man? You're right, dude. I got to thinking. I got to thinking. Why should we settle for a measly fucking we? 20 grand? What the fuck we? You said you just wanted to come along. My point, dude, is why should we settle for 20 grand when we can keep the entire million? Am I wrong? Yes, you're wrong. This isn't a fucking game, man. Oh, but it is a game. You said so yourself. She kidnapped herself. I said I thought. Dude here. Who is this? Dude, the bag man. Man, where do you want us to go? Us? Shit! Yeah, you know, uh, me and the driver. I I'm not uh, handling the money, driving the car, and talking on the phone all by Shut my Shut the fuck up! Dude, are you fucking this up? Who is that? That is the driver. I told you. Shit! What the fuck's going on there? Walter! What the fuck is going on? You hung on? up, man! You fucked it up! You fucked it up! Her life was in our hands, man! Easy, dude. We're screwed now. We don't get shit. They're gonna kill her. We're fucked, Walter. Nothing is fucked, dude. Come on. You're being very undude. They'll call man. back. Look, she kidnapped her You see? Nothing's fucked here, dude. Nothing is fucked. They're a bunch of fucking amateurs. Hey, Wal hey Walter, will you just... Shut the fuck up! Don't say people! I'm doing business here, man! Okay, dude. Do it your way. But they're amateurs. Dude. Okay, we proceed, but only if there's no funny stuff. Yeah, yeah. So no funny stuff, okay? Hey, just tell me where the fuck you want us to go. After the bungled handoff, where Credence Clearwater's Run Through the Jungle played very loudly, just to associate that music with the dude's car, and after Walter throws out his dirty whites to those dirty whites, <laughs> oh my god! The dude is beside himself, distraught, thinking they're gonna kill that poor woman. 
And the dude rather foolishly leaves apparently a million dollars in his shitty, very easy to steal car that he parked in a handicap zone outside the bowling alley. It is stolen by a young boy named Larry Sellers, who is the son of Arthur Digby Sellers, the fictional writer of the real TV show Branded. Later on in the uh, movie, the dude is recovering from one hallucination and is singing the theme tune to Branded to himself. And the dude is left in the unenviable position of trying to use the police to get his illegally stolen car back, hoping that the illegally stolen money that was supposed to be given to the illegal kidnapping kidnappers is still somehow in there, or at least he can find out who might have it. And the dude is not the most mentally agile when it comes to dealing with the police. Though notably there's a power of three on the Credence because he gets mentioned again here and when we know he's definitely got that car back, it plays Do 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 looking out my back door. And this is around about the time that Maud Lebowski makes contact directly and summons him to her art loft where she's not going to let uh, the reception of a hippie uh, spoil her art day. She was trying to paint a picture with paint splatter while being flung through the air, suspended from the ceiling, apparently naked. She puts a lot of passion into her art. I mean, do you want to talk about Maud? It's difficult really to put a finger on what I, I love about Maud so much because she's incredibly cold, superior. She's not unpleasant, but she doesn't seem to want to make herself particularly appealing to anyone else around her. Everything, in fact, yeah, this is this is what it comes down to. Everything Maud does is for her own purposes. She is, however, direct and doesn't brook with small talk, or at least doesn't seem to. Yeah, which is appealing, appealing to me. <laughs> I admire that. Does the female form make you uncomfortable, Mr. Lebowski? Uh, is that what this is a picture of? In a sense, yes. My art has been commended as being strongly vaginal, which bothers some men. The word itself makes some men uncomfortable. Vagina. Oh, yeah? Yes, they don't like hearing it and find it difficult to say, whereas without batting an eye, a man will refer to his dick, or his rod, or his... Johnson. Johnson? All right, Mr. Lebowski, let's get down to cases. My father told me he agreed to let you have the rod, but as it was a gift from me to my late mother, it was not his to give. Now, as for this kidnapping... Huh? Yes, I know all about it, and I know that you acted as courier. Let me tell you something, the whole thing stinks to high heaven. Yeah, right, but, but let me explain something about the rug. Do you like sex, Mr. Lebowski? Excuse me? Sex, the physical act of love. Coitus. Do you like it? I was talking about my rug. You're not interested in sex? You mean coitus? I like it too. It's a male myth about feminists that we hate sex. It can be a natural, zesty enterprise. However, there are some people, it is called ceteriasis in men, nymphomania in women, who engage in it compulsively and without joy. Oh, no. Oh, yes, Mr. Lebowski. These unfortunate souls cannot love in the true sense of the word. Our mutual acquaintance, Bunny, is one of these. 
listen, Maude, um, I'm sorry if your stepmother is a nympho, but uh, you know I don't see what this has to do with. Uh, you have any Kahlua? Take a look at this, sir. Hmm. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, he's a nihilist. Carl Hungus. Hi. Hello. My dispatcher says there's something wrong with Dinah Carver. Yeah, come on in. I'm not really sure exactly what's really wrong with the cable. Well, that's why they sent me. I am an expert. The TV's in here. You recognize uh, her, of course. Where my tools? Oh, that's my friend Sherry. She just came over to use a shower. The story is ludicrous. My name is college been expert. You must be here to fix the cable. Lord, you can imagine where it goes from here. He fixes the cable? Don't be fatuous, Jeffrey. Little matter to me that this woman chose to pursue a career in pornography, nor that she has been banging Jackie Treehorn, to use the parlance of our times. However, I am one of the two trustees of the Lebowski Foundation, the other being my father. The foundation takes youngsters from Watts and... Shit, yeah, the achievers. Little Lebowski urban achievers, yes, and proud we are of all of them. I asked my father about his withdrawal of a million dollars from the foundation account, and he told me about this abduction. But I tell you, it is preposterous. This compulsive fornicator is taking my father for the proverbial ride. Yeah, but my... I'm getting to your rug. My father and I don't get along. He doesn't approve of my lifestyle, and needless to say, I don't approve of his. However, I hardly wish to make my father's embezzlement a police matter, so I'm proposing that you try to recover the money from the people you delivered it to. Well, I could do that. If you successfully do so, I will compensate you to the tune of 10% of the recovered sum. A hundred? Uh, thousand, yes. Bones or clams or whatever you call them. Yeah, uh, but... but uh... What about my... Your uh, rug, yes. Well, with that money, you can buy any number of rugs that don't have sentimental value for me. And I am sorry about that crack on the jaw. Oh, that's it's, it's fine. That doesn't even... Uh, Here's the name and number of a doctor who will look at it for you. You will receive no bill. He's a good man and thorough. Uh, that, that, that's thoughtful, but... Please see him, Jeffrey. He's a good man and thorough. She's... Jeffrey Lebowski's daughter, mm. only child. From this previous marriage where the mother died and yep. the one who had the, all the money. Absolutely. She is an artist, uh, doesn't appear to have a day job, so she's, I mean, she's obviously very independently wealthy anyway. But she's also got a lot of bougie friends. Yes, who hang around her loft and mm. snigger at the dude. <laughs> This is in the later meeting. Knott's Harrington, the video artist, played by David Thewlis. Mm. It's the way she introduces him in a manner that suggests... Everyone knows... Everyone knows Knott's Harrington. He's the world's most world-famous video artist. Indeed. I Um, mean, that feels absurd, the way she puts that, but the amount of times you get a movie where it's like, you're that FBI agent who caught that famous serial killer. It's like, nobody knows the name of the FBI agent who caught that famous serial killer. No. Not in the real world. That is not common knowledge. No. For quite good reasons. Indeed, yes, because people would end up outside their houses. Maud has summoned the dude in order to... Set him straight regarding Bunny. Well, yeah, so she, her her interest in this is that the money that her father ostensibly gave the dude, mm. which we later find out he didn't at all, yeah, to, to Maud, is this an is... actual million dollars yeah. that has come from somewhere. Oh, yeah. Her father definitely took the money. Yes. That's gone. But rather than going to the dude and then going to Uli, 
it just went to her dad. Yeah. Maud has a a way of talking that is both very judgmental, but as you say, she's so direct. She she's very much say things as they are. And in a way that because she sounds very smart, she's obviously very intelligent and very ed- well-educated, it doesn't come across as that she's just brutal. But the bottom line is, she's just brutal. <laughs> but this conversation is one of the funniest. And I I don't even... I can't sit here because I'll just quote the whole thing. Hmm. But it's it's some of the sharpest exchanges of lines and... So much of that comes down to Julianne Moore's delivery, and, and specifically Jeff Bridges being bewildered and huh? absolutely, but but like he's throwing these um, lines out to her in such a soft what the hell kind of way, mm. and she picks them up, and and it's so snappy and so immediate that it's the pacing as much as it is the actual words that that convey the humour in this one. Mm. This is also where he's being driven back in a limo from Maud's, uh, and then he gets out of one limo and is grabbed and shoved into another limo, but not without also spotting a creepy blue Volkswagen Beetle that's been hanging around outside his house, which comes back into play repeatedly. Someone is spying on the dude. So in this second limo, there's the Big Lebowski and Brant now telling Jeffrey that it's his fault, her life was in his hands, and they've now been sent a toe. Now for the Big Lebowski, as far as he's concerned, this is definitely Bunny's toe. He recognises the nail polish. As it turns out, it's not Bunny's toe, it's the girlfriend of one of Uli's friends who's also a nihilist, but it's, which must be exhausting. Indeed. But it's worth noting that at this point, Jeffrey Lebowski is responding to what he assumes is the kidnapper's response to his briefcase full of yeah. phone books. His ringer as opposed to the dude's ringer-ringer, yeah. thanks to Walter. Mm. Which, again, makes the Big Lebowski horrendously manipulative. He doesn't even have to get the dude in here. I think he's just demanding that the dude go and investigate the kidnappers and that ultimately all of this is on his head. Mm. Yeah, and his, his attitude Just to sort of prepare him for is, when the cops come around. As far as anybody else is concerned, I gave you that money and the money has disappeared. You've got it. And again, this is why I think that um, he actually wanted uh, the dude to be murdered by these kidnappers, because otherwise, why not just immediately report him to the police? Yeah. At this point, it's like, well, they didn't kill you the first time. Maybe if I push you back towards them, they'll do it again. Yeah. And it cleans up the mess. It stops the lines of potential investigation if everyone involved is dead. He's a vicious motherfucker, this yes, big Lebowski. Yes, I told you, Mr. Potter. Then we get the third break-in and assault to the dude's crib. Uh, remember, the first time it was the rug peers, the second time it was Maud's bother boys. The third time, it's the fucking nihilists. They all turn up 
while he's in the tub, we start with a shot of the dude's toes to make it seem, well, to directly correlate them with this single green nail polished toe that's gone astray. And, you know, he's made to look immediately vulnerable while he's listening to a whale song in the tub and smoking a jay. And then the nihilists come in and throw a marmot into his bath. Hey, hey this is a private residence, man. <laughs> You think we are kidding or making with the funny stuff? Yeah. Except you think you haven't dreamed of Lebowski. Yeah, we believe in nothing. We believe in nothing, Lebowski, nothing. And tomorrow we come back and we cut off your Johnson. Excuse me? I said we cut off your Johnson! Just think about that, Lebowski. Ah, you wiggling penis. Lebowski, maybe stomp on it and squish it. And notably, Uli is wearing what looks like a very, very thin black hoodie with the hood up, which makes him look like a bobsledder, and that somehow comes back. Yes. So we get another one of the, where is the Mali Lebowski reprise. This is, it's like a musical. Yeah. In that, you know how you go back to the leitmotifs of previous uh, songs? Absolutely, yeah. Shortly after this, we get the midpoint bar prop, as in they're at the bar, and the dude is... Really distressed because they're going to cut off his Johnson. Well, that is just ridiculous, dude. No one's going to cut your dick off. Thank you, Walter. Not if I have anything to say about it. Thank you, Walter. That makes me feel very secure. Dude. That makes me feel very uh, warm inside. Dude. This whole fucking thing. I could be sitting here with just pee stains on my rug. Yeah. But no, man. I gotta, fucking you know. Germans. Nothing changes. Fucking Nazis. They were Nazis, dude? Oh, come on, Donnie. They were threatening castration. Uh-huh. Are we going to split hairs here? No. no. Am I wrong? Well, he, he Man, they Am were I... nihilists, man. Huh? They kept saying they believed in nothing. Nihilists. Fuck me. I mean, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. Yeah. Interjection, this speech is one of the worst that Walter gives in terms of informing on his character. For a start, it's racist as fuck. Secondly, secondly, defining Nazism as the tenets of National Socialism is incredibly dated. Whatever they called themselves, it's far more accurate to say ultra-nationalism or in most cases, white supremacy, since the DNA shared is very similar, and you'll find a lot of nihilists involved in white supremacy. Third, at least it's an ethos is batshit nuts when that ethos is mass genocide. There's no at least here. So yeah, I don't think the Coen brothers want you to agree with Walter here. Just because he's calm doesn't make him not wrong. And also, let's not forget, let's not forget, dude, that keeping wildlife, um, an amphibious rodent for, um, you know, domestic within the city, that ain't legal either. What are you, a fucking park ranger now? No, I'm just trying Who to offer- a shit about the fucking marmot? We are sympathizing here, dude. Fuck sympathy. I don't need your fucking sympathy, man. I need my fucking Johnson. What do you need that for, dude? You have got to buck up, man. You cannot drag this negative energy into the tournament. Fuck the tournament. Fuck you, Walter. Fuck the tournament? Okay, dude, I can see you don't want to be cheered up here. Come on, Donnie, let's go get us a lane. However, we then get to meet in the flesh our 
Storyteller. Gonzo Dickens' uh, grizzled old cowboy, the, the mysterious stranger that... Uh, this is one of the few benevolent strangers uh, that uh, the Coen brothers have uh, put in their films. Usually they are quite threatening mm-hmm. presences stalking along the road after our hero. But in this one, he turns up, seems to know everything about the dude. It's Sam Elliott. And he's convivial with him. He points out at the beginning that dude is not a name that people would go about... Uh, where he's from, because in the parlance of their times, uh, dude meant a dandied up city guy uh, rather than someone who had scratched out a living off rocks Absolutely. in the Wild don't West. Don't let him go outside on his own, he yeah. might die. If some dude from Yankton comes around, you don't give him the full control of the actual vein of gold or silver. You give him a tour and then have Dan knife him and leave him in the crick. No more talking like a grizzled old 1930s prospect. Concern it. But yeah, the, the stranger sidles in. The thing that always stuck with me is that there's it's almost proof of his omniscience when he says to the dude, I like your style, in that he hasn't actually really been around to observe him, but then mentions... But do you have to use so many cuss words? Now, the dude has not sworn in that conversation yet. And his response is, what the fuck are you talking about? The stranger's like, okay, dude, have it your way. There is absolutely a video game equivalent of this. Rux in Bastion, who talks about the kid the whole way through the game in this wonderful old-timey cowboy way, which absolutely influenced me when it came to making New Century. Proper story is supposed to start at the beginning. Ain't so simple with this one. Now here's a kid whose whole world got all twisted, leaving him stranded on a rock in the sky. He gets up, sets off for the bastion, where everyone agreed to go in case of trouble. Ground forms up under his feet as it point in the way. He don't stop to wonder why. I've often found benefit in quiet and calm determination over jingoistic flag-waving as a means of inspiration. I also find this leads me to not overcompensate for the very real misgivings I have on a regular basis. Some leaders hide their weaknesses from those who follow, striving to appear as a paragon. I cannot relate to a paragon. They occupy a space in a man's mind best left for other products of fiction. No man is without fear, and the ones who are truly frightened me. That was Nathaniel Curtis, General of the Armies in the Cartographer's Handbook, whom I absolutely based on Sam Elliott. I asked my artist Antonio Torrison to study Sam Elliott's face for the front cover. Cheeky though this may be, I'd like to think he would approve. And I would still absolutely love to work with him and make this dream a reality. He plays kind of a mystical cowboy wizard here. Not a million miles from Lee Scoresby, whom he played in The Golden Compass. The dude says, is that some kind of Eastern thing? He says, far from it, in a kind of way that suggests that there is a philosophy that exists out there. And of course, they are as far west as you can possibly go. They're practically on the beach. You got a good sarsaparilla? Sioux City sarsaparilla? Yeah, it's a good one. How you doing there, dude? Not too good, man. One of those days, huh? Yeah. Well, a wiser fellow than myself once said, sometimes you eat the bar and much obliged. 
Sometimes the bar will eat you. Mm. That's some kind of Eastern thing? Far from it. I like your style, dude. Oh, well, I dig your style too, man. Got a whole cowboy thing going. One thing, dude. What's that? You have to use so many cuss words. The fuck are you talking about? Okay, dude. Have it your way. Take her easy, dude. Yeah, thanks, ma'am. At this stage, Sharon and I were getting really tired, and we waffled for a long while. I cut that out, it's not even good enough to be in a cutting class, you'll never hear it. Suffice to say, the second half of this film is a lot more delirious. Harder to put your finger on what's going on, which is where a lot of the confusion derives. But, since we put everything in perspective for the first half, you all should be on the same page. The dude follows the paper trail to the boy who stole his car, seems to be withholding the money and indeed any information from him. Larry is implacable. Walter once again overreacts and destroys a neighbor's Corvette, leading to Donnie getting genuinely frightened when the neighbor starts to smash up the dude's car into further disrepair. We know it's a dead end. Suffice to say, the dude suffers a fourth home invasion, this time by the rug peers, who drag his ass to the pornographer Jackie Treehorn's estate. We're introduced to Jackie in this almost mythological way. We start with a woman bouncing up into the air in slow motion to strangely hypnotic music as it, we then pan out to a toilet beach party where all of these strange, like it's almost like a bacchanalia is just about to break out. And then Treehorn approaches and says directly to us in the camera, I'm Jackie Treehorn. And then he lives in a fucking Bond villain lair. Like his house is just this giant rhombus of concrete with this enormous, like, again, factory-like warehouse with these strange, almost bunker-like qualities to yeah, it. Yeah, this is, every time I see an architect-designed house that, like, there are elements of it that are so incredibly beautiful, usually great big windows and a lot of light and this sense of openness and then just grey edges of concrete everywhere that make me go, ah, falling and hurting head. Yeah, especially as uh, one assumes those couches get boned on in front of cameras quite often. I very distinctly saw that there's like a big concrete middle bit you're supposed to rest your drinks on in the middle of one of those couches. You don't want a big concrete bit there. Put a put a big soft rug on there. The only advantage I can think of is that if you live in a very, very hot environment, as long as it doesn't have sun directly on it, concrete stays cool. Yes. And there's a, a, a wonderful, like, the, because of the actual decor, because his industry deliberately evokes the 70s again. He gets, Jackie gets called away from his discussion with the dude where he's asking the dude for the money from Bunny and at least just asking where she is and you know, just, you know, get, let's get to the bottom of this one. I'm sick of Bunny uh, giving me the runaround. And he goes and talks on the phone 
jots something down and there's this 70s smash cut to his hand writing on the pad in a kind of a three days of the condor like this is something important the dude is this noticing is this the dude's big clue yeah and the dude you know as soon as Jackie excuses himself rushes over to the pad does a little bark rubbing type thing on the pad to see what Jackie just uh, scribbled down and it's a guy with a massive dog and this is what I mean about the whole, the questions that get answered tend to be absurd and simply pose further questions. Indeed. So is this just Jackie was trying to look important mm. by scribbling a doodle? Was it just that when he's on the phone, he doodles? Mm. I think personally it was an idea. Dude with a big knob. <laughs> okay. My next movie's going to be totally different to all the other ones. Was that prompted then by uh, him saying that the brain is the biggest erogenous stone and the dude responding, maybe on you? Yeah, that seems <laughs> like it's not a cell phone for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> then you think about it and you go, oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, what condition my condition was in? I woke up this morning with the sundown shining in I found my mind in a brown paper bag But then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I tore my mind on a jagged sky I just dropped in See what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition But while he's unconscious, the dude has a full-on hallucination entitled Gutterballs, where he takes bits again that he has catamaried from the film, and you get a vast, monolithic almost, concrete structure that he's dancing through, photographed by Deakins. It's, it's, it's the most high production value porno ever. He's dressed as a engineer, uh, an expert cable repairman in the same uh, white jumpsuit as Carl Hungus. Maud Lebowski is there, which suggests on some level the dude is attracted to her, which makes her manipulations of him slightly less seedy, but only slightly, especially as she's about to command him rather than request. He's handed bowling shoes by the guy who played Saddam Hussein in the Hot Shots movies. But if you look very carefully earlier in the film, there's a guy who looks a bit like the guy who looks like Saddam Hussein, spraying the inside of the bowling shoes at the alley. So clearly the dude has seen this guy and thought, oh, he looks a little like Saddam Hussein. And then that turned up in his drink. I feel like Maud being dressed as a Valkyrie is something to do with Autobahn and the, uh, the operatic German flavor they yeah. lend it. That would make sense. Maybe. I, the, the most amusing thing about Maud's outfit though is that the uh, the boob plate armour is bowling, is bowling balls. balls and yes. has the three finger holes in it. And there's a bunch of girls uh, dressed as bowling pins that the dude gets to look up all their skirts as he is cast down the bowling alley much like a ball himself. But then his hallucination takes a turn for the worse. He doesn't actually get to go to Bone Town because instead, his anxiety regarding the Nihilists happens, and he takes the bobsled look that Uli was sporting and puts it on all three of them. Now they're wearing red and they look like demon Teletubbies, and they have these giant scissors 
But if you look very carefully earlier on when he's at Maud's apartment loft, one of her paintings is a pair of giant scissors of exactly the same kind. This is what I mean about callbacks and returns. But it does very much make it look like the dude sees everything in his environment, stores it away in his subconscious, and it churns itself back yes. up later on. Is this your homework, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Look, man. Do, it... please. Is this your homework, Larry? Just ask him about the car, man. Is this yours, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Is that your car out front? Is this your homework, Larry? We know it's his fucking homework. Where's the fucking money, you little brat? Look, Larry. Have you ever heard of Vietnam? Oh, for You're entering a world Walter. of pain, son. We know that this is your homework. We know that you stole a car. And the fucking money. And the fucking money. And we know that this is your homework. You're gonna cut your dick off, Larry. You're killing your father, Larry. After being thrown out by Jackie Treehorn, the well-to-do pornographer, reported to the police, picked up by the local sheriff who beats the shit out of him because he's considered a nobody drifter vagrant, someone the country club would rather didn't exist at all, Jeffrey gets back to his home, stumbles over his own crude defenses, make of that what you will, and the literal girl of his dreams turns up to bed him, in the shape of Maud, who wants to conceive a child with a father who won't have anything to do with the baby. That is until about 20 years later, when the baby checks their birth certificate, finds their father is Jeffrey Lebowski and has a nervous breakdown. Having been given more information on the fact that the Big Lebowski is in fact not super rich like he thought. That's the missing piece of the puzzle that the dude needs to close the case. And he decides to immediately revisit the Big Lebowski to effectively clear his name and go J'accuse. But in doing so, he stumbles back into that blue Volkswagen Beetle, which is driven by a man named Delfino, who is a private dick searching for Bunny Lebowski, whose real name is Fawn Knutchen, which again is one of those hallmarks of an L.A. noir. Country girl with wide eyes and big dreams comes out to L.A. and the whole seedy, hidden Hollywood mouth chews her up and takes what little it can from her. Usually the country girl ends up dead and it's you know, something horrible that has to be avenged that she's taken, like swallowed by the movie system mm. and treated really horribly. Yeah, I think honestly that's probably one of the reasons why I do feel in spite of her apparent shallowness, mm. I do feel bad for Bunny. I do think she gets massively mistreated even at the level of being constantly slated behind her back and I am relieved that she Doesn't turns end out up okay being an immaculate corpse yeah which would every other noir would do that with her yes her archetype always represents innocence as it turns out she's not an innocent little girl neither is she a malevolent villainess she's not even a liar she's just really bad at communication in contrast, Julianne Moore's archetype would be a similarly manipulative seductress, but would almost always try to kill the private eye. But Maud is much more of a non-fatal femme fatale. Sex to Maud is not a weapon to be wielded, so much as an enjoyable means to an end. The dude and Walter finally confront the big Lebowski, hit him with their workings out, none of which he denies. Walter is supremely angry at being accused of exactly what he did, which is to interfere and double-cross on the handover and keep the money for himself. And after Jeffrey Lebowski, the weak man with deluded dreams of power is laid very low, 
We're left back at the bowling alley with Donny finally not hitting strikes. And in the parking lot, the nihilists have finally killed the dude's car completely and are still demanding their money, along with what now feel like pathetic threats of violence. And Walter escalates, and this is where his overreactions come back to bite him. Well, they finally did it. They killed my fucking car. We want some money, Lavotsky. Yeah. Otherwise, we kill the girl. Yeah, it seems you have forgotten our little deal, Dabowski. You don't have the fucking girl, dipshit. We know you never did. Are these the Nazis, Walter? No, Donnie, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. We don't care. We still want the money, Lepofsky. We fuck you up. Fuck you. Fuck the three of you. No. Without a hostage, there is no ransom. That's what ransom is. Those are the fucking rules. His girlfriend gave up her toll. She thought we'd been getting million dollars. It's not fair. Fair? Who's the fucking nihilist around here, you bunch of fucking crybabies? I'm cool at Walter. Hey, look, pal, there never was any money. The big Lebowski gave me an empty briefcase, so take it up with him, man. And I would like my undies, babe. This guy's gonna hurt us, Walter? No, Donnie. These men are cowards. Okay, so we take some money, you have won, you, uh, we call Shadifa. <laughs> Fuck you. Hey, no, come on, Walter, come on, we're ending this thing cheap, man. No, what's mine is mine. Oh, come on, Walter. No funny stuff. All right, all right. Uh, no funny stuff. I got uh, four bucks, almost five. I, I got $18. What's mine is mine. We fuck you up, man, we take the money. Come and get it. And Walter resolves the conflict by, in a very distinctive way, he bites off Uli's ear and punches him in the face, calling him an anti-Semite. In 1997, probably not long before this started filming, Mike Tyson, in a much-anticipated match against Evander Holyfield, got into a clinch with his opponent and bit off his ear. This is exemplary of a man who goes way over the top and does things that you really don't need to do. I think that that's one of the most famous moments of needless over-violence and illegal activity within the ring with everyone watching, tying him to Walter. Market Zero! They're calling the cops, man. Put the piece away. Market Zero! Funny though he is, pathetic though he is, pitiable though he is, this is a man who doesn't know where to draw the line, where to stop. But in the doing this, the actual escalation to conflict, Donny doesn't get murdered by anyone, but his heart, his soft little heart, can't take it. The amount of stress he's been under in the uh, past few days, again, not helped by the guy trying to smash up the dude's car while Donny was still in it. And I think Donny's the only person who dies in the entire movie, which is sort of perfect because it leaves the end proceedings on the fallout of this is that conflict occurred that didn't need to as a result of all of the mix-ups, but ultimately down to the fact that Walter took things too far again. And it leaves the two surviving friends sat in a funeral parlor just made of marble, really out of their depth and element, and being told that their most moderately priced receptacle uh, is going to cost $180 in 1990 money. 
There is a real problem with the funeral industry. There are two problems with the funeral industry. One of them is the obsession with embalming bodies and burying people in these lavish caskets, full-size bodies that just sit there under the ground. In many cases, the embalming fluids leaking into the soil and poisoning the land. There absolutely needs to be a biodegradable, environmentally friendly, less material-intensive, less carbon footprint way of laying the dead to rest. There's something really worrisome about the almost Egyptian pharaoh levels of expense and pageantry connected with funerals, when ultimately, most of the time, it's it should really be more of a personal thing. And what, what they decide to do with Donnie in the end, put his ashes in a coffee can, and just scatter them into the sea is really probably the best way we could deal with our loved ones in the future. Like the, the, the way that's least gonna fuck up the earth and actually is kind of a, you just stand there, you say something quiet, you scatter them. Mm. It's sobering. When someone's dead and you're trying to deal with it and someone gives you a bill you're not really in the mood to argue with them. You're too upset as it is, and arguing about money seems churlish. And that absolutely factors into the funeral industry's ability to hike up the prices for no good reason. Because they know they've got a captive audience who can't exactly argue with them and aren't inclined to. Uh, if anybody's interested in finding out more about that, by the way, I heartily recommend the Ask a Mortician channel with Caitlin uh, Doughty and her book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is all about the American funeral industry and how it frames things to bereaved people to suggest that they are compulsory yeah. when they are in fact not. It's worth noting as well that uh, this is much more of an American problem than it is a UK issue, although obviously funerals still, generally speaking, cost quite a bit. Yeah. Direct funerals are becoming much more popular since the pandemic because people couldn't have visitors and guests and things, so um, that is an option. Her up as the feller says. Like to take the time while I got you all around the campfire here to extend a convivial gratitude to all them good-hearted, salt-of-the-earth folks on the School of Movies Patreon Ranch. In particular, them dedicated prospecting folks who sink a couple of extra gold nuggets in every month. Stoke the fires, keep the furnace burning. So a big old thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard. Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, 
Frankie Punzi, Gregory Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joe Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Weister, Cat Esman, Kevin Bay, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hillis Hario, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, uh, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Thanks to every one of you out there listening. These folks at the School of Movies surely do try their hardest. Yes, they do. I don't know why I'm suddenly Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right. We will be back in seven days with the next part of our Studio Ghibli season. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. Yeah, now when you're sitting there In your silk upholstered chair Talking to some rich folks that you know Well, I hope you don't see me In my ragged company All that you know I could never be alone Take me down, little Susie, take me down I know you think you're the queen of the underground Send me dead flowers every morning Send me dead flowers by the maid Send me dead flowers to my wedding And I won't forget to put roses on your grave Well now when you're sitting back In your rose pink Cadillac Making bets on Kentucky Derby days I'll be in my basement room With a needle and a spoon And another girl to take my pain away Take me down, little Susie, take me down I know you think you're the queen of the underground Send me dead flowers every morning Send me dead flowers by the May Send me dead flowers to my wedding And I won't forget to put roses on your grave
take me down, little Susie, take me down. I know you think you're the queen of the underground. Send me dead flowers every morning. Send me dead flowers by the mail. Send me dead flowers to my wedding. Forget to put roses on your grave. No, I won't forget to put roses on your grave. Um, do me a favour, just look up a picture of a marmot, because I don't think it is a marmot. What are you, a fucking park ranger now? <laughs> Who gives a shit about the fucking marmot? <laughs> oh god, you're right. That A marmot looks like a groundhog. Yeah, that was a fucking stunt okay. or something. Look up Pine Martin. M-A-R-T-E-N. Oh no, I know how to spell Pine Martin. Uh, Pantalimon turned into one. Mm. No, that's not quite it, is it? Try stoat. Try stoat. Mm, getting closer. That's a happy little stoat right it there. It is. Let's try weasel. What's the difference between a stoat and a weasel? Well, a weasel is weaselly recognised, but a stoat is stotally different. Very good. <laughs> okay, we both know the same kid jokes. Those are dad jokes. Mm. Uh, okay, tell you what, Very folks. Right? No, I'm not playing. Guess the fucking mammal. <laughs> we have got nearly sixty more points to make before we get to the end. Again, <laughs> who gives a shit about the fucking marmot? It's an actor. He's acting as a marmot. <laughs> and he is. Like, as soon as they throw him into the tub, he is like, we discussed this and I said no. He is freaking the fuck out. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the actual one is, is a stuffed toy. I don't know. The, it's all over the place. That would be cruel, though. You can't well, do Well, they that. were nihilists, dude. <laughs> oh, wait. They are also actors. Yes. Yes. <laughs>